three things we control each day. Kindness, passion, and effort. Marty Smith. Hello, fellow Powder Hounds, and welcome to the Powder Hounds Podcast, a ski trivia game podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Shaw. It's June, which means it's the season of deciding which winter season pass to buy. Many season pass product offerings remain discounted and available, though when you are sweating in 90 degree heat, it's kind of hard to think about sliding on snow. Consider this episode a gentle and friendly reminder to buy that pass, any pass. Before we get into our trivia questions, a quick quote-unquote correction from the April episode entitled, Your Salad Suck. (laughs) The intended-to-be-humorous bit and opining about a stinging rebuke of a recent salad preparation. As I honestly admitted, the creativity of salad ingredients had, well, hit a wall despite lots of mix and matching over the last year. Yet a few weeks later, sweet vindication. On May 2nd, a column by Alexandra Jacobs in the New York Times style section caught my attention. Miss Jacobs references a 10-year-old book, Sad Desk Salad, written by Jessica Grose, who talks about, quote-unquote, the loss of the power lunch of yore, often fueled, with martinis and other cocktails, replaced with the Tupperware home creation one eats alone at their desk while working or staring at a screen, end quote. Indeed, the eating at your desk trend, which I'll admit I've done plenty of times, is worth reversing. And to that end, and to link back to the your salad suck bit, I'd like to share a quote from the article which simply made my day. Jacobs writes, quote, Well, honey, and this is intended to grows, if you thought those Tupperware salads were sad, you should have seen the ones I made for myself at home, in quarantine, at weird not-so-lunch hours like 10 a.m. or 3 p.m., incorporating whatever leftovers were available, end quote. Indeed, our salads suck. Moving on to our next segment. Tips up your read, listen, and watch suggestions. First up, a read recommendation. This is from Ski Magazine. The article is entitled, How a Generation of Skiers Was Robbed of Rollerblading and What Brought It Back. 
So this is a fun read about the connection of rollerblading to skiing, which uh, I hadn't thought of, I guess, in a long time, but it makes sense, you know, sort of the motion, the balance, you know, turning to sort of stop, at least uh, get yourself in control. And yeah, an off-season recreation and training activity, sure. Uh, but what was interesting was really the push into the skate park scene that essentially laid the foundation for modern-day free skiing. I didn't know that. That was very interesting to learn. Now, I remember rollerblading to play street hockey, which I think was a thing at the time when I was a up-and-comer, <laughs> I guess. But uh, I really don't remember the interaction between rollerbladers and skateboarders, which I understand was not a good one, and in that skateboarders basically mocked rollerblading out of existence. The article definitely goes down that rabbit hole. But on the positive side, the article also included a short video filmed in Maui from the first team rollerblade shoot that led to the 1987 film release, The Good, The Rad, and The Gnarly. So stay with me. Think about this. 1980s, okay? Rollerblading, okay? <laughs> 80s music, 80s fashion. <laughs> so there's like, you know, half a dozen rollerbladers <laughs> doing various tricks, turns, um, one of which was complete with ski poles, essentially carving sort of short turns down Haleakala, the dormant volcano in Maui, I guess during sunset and, uh, you know, 80s music blaring in the background. Somehow it worked for the film, but more importantly, the idea of rollerblading connecting back to skiing essentially laid the foundation for the skate-to-ski program. So there's actually some, some real value in, in, in that. Uh, and the article was just a fascinating read on the history of rollerblading, and it's apparently roaring back now that many people have had some free time over the last year to explore old hobbies, passions, perhaps. Uh, but uh, I don't think I'm—I don't think I'm going to don rollerblades anytime soon. Moving on to a listen recommendation. This is Off the Couch Podcast, the June 9th, twenty twenty edition. The article or the interview is entitled "Creating Your Own Sport" with Buzz Burrell, one of the co-founders of the movement and website fastest known time. Now, if you're not familiar with this movement, the concept, the website, it's essentially for runners, through hikers, and backpackers. And they essentially create a route that they essentially run, backpack, or through hike the fastest known time. And then it's up to other people to try to beat their time. That's really it in a nutshell. The only rules are that it has to be at least five miles long and it has to be interesting. You have to, it has to be compelling enough for someone else to want to, you know, tackle it and to, you know, try to beat your time. But what's cool about it is once a time is established, only times that beat that time kind of get added to the website. So it's kind of cool if you want to get on the website, essentially you have to, you know, be the first to do a route <laughs> then, you know, your name is sort of there forever. Uh, but what was really fascinating is that, you know, most people are not on the short uh, or sprint side of the equation, five miles, uh, you know, to say a marathon. They're like multi-day, multi-week, multi-month tackling like the entire Appalachian Trail, you know, the entire long trail over obviously multiple days. Some of them are unassisted or I guess the unsupported 
is the actual term, self-supported. Uh, it's just really interesting. And take a look. I uh, might your your host here might have uh, submitted a a route and uh, has a fastest known time on the Chatham Marconi wireless route. So if you're uh, in that neck of the woods and want to try to beat my time, I dare you. Moving on to the, oh, I'm sorry, one more time. We got a watch recommendation. How about this? Weird Waves Season 3, Surfing Lake Tahoe. So this is a short video, but it's super cool. Just something about surfing at over 6,000 feet above sea level. You know, where waves usually are. Yeah, uh, and what was really interesting about the video, obviously it was well done, uh, but really the super short window of time and conditions that have to come together to actually be able to, you know, uh, ride a wave, a sustained breaks um, over, you know, sort of that just super short uh, amount of time. And I think in the video there were people skiing in the background. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was pretty interesting and pretty cool to see, you know, people donning wetsuits to jump in a really cold lake to catch a few waves uh, that come and go probably, you know, maybe once a month, something like that. So there's your read, watch, and listen recommendations. We will leave it there. Moving on to our next segment, Ski News of the Week-ish trivia questions. This is a collection from April to June 2021. It's also the first round of a multi-round trivia game challenge. All right, number one. According to the National Ski Areas Association, how many total skier visits in the U.S. were recorded for the past winter season? Number two. In late April, what mega mountain announced it will partner with the Icon Pass for the upcoming winter season? Number three. What three ski areas join the Indy Pass for the upcoming 2022 winter season. Number four, continuing the early trivia theme of season passes, <laughs> the lesser known Freedom Pass added four ski areas to their season pass product. What are they? Number five, 19-year-old Grace Staberg from Silver Throne, Colorado, broke the women's record for North America doing what at Copper Mountain in Colorado? Number six, let's head west. For Altera's biggest capital project of the summer season, what is it and where is it? Number seven, what Colorado ski area reported the biggest snowfall this past season? Number eight, Fars Hill, a 200 vertical foot rope toe bump in a Vermont farmer's backyard, is set to reopen next year. How long has it been closed for? Number nine, what New Jersey ski area turned heads when announcing a herd of goats would join their lawn mowing team? <laughs> and number 10, Alpine X plans to build a new indoor snow sports resort in what East Coast state? All right, so those are your 10 Ski News of the Week is trivia questions. And here are the answers. 
Number one, according to the National Ski Areas Association, how many total skier visits in the U.S. were recorded for the past winter season? Now, uh, think of this as, uh, you know, uh, just, you know, closest to the number. If you said 59 million skier visits, you would be right, exactly right. Again, this is an approximation, but uh, yeah, you'd be the closest. 59 million. Yeah, it was the fifth best season on record and a strong improvement upon the pandemic-shortened 2029-2020 winter season, which tallied 51.1 million visits. Yes. Despite the challenges of modified operations, capacity restrictions, and other COVID-related adjustments, 78% of ski area operators said this past winter season exceeded their expectations. How about that? All right, number two. In late April, what mega mountain announced it will partner with the Icon Pass for the upcoming 2021-2022 winter season? That would be Schweitzer Mountain in Idaho. Yes, many may not have heard of Schweitzer, but it is a really large mountain with 2,900 skiable acres. It's actually bigger than more famous resorts, including Jackson Hole, Snowbird, Copper, Alta, Sun Valley, Deer Valley, Telluride, and Beaver Creek. Yeah, it's pretty big. <laughs> now, in terms of the Icon Partner Mountains, it will become the 12th largest ski resort on the Icon Pass. So Icon's got some serious uh, <laughs> offerings. And from the top of the summit off the Great Escape Quad, you can actually take a photo with three states or Canada behind you, those three states, obviously, at home in Idaho, but also Washington State and Montana. Yeah, how about that? This is a little bonus question if you are an Icon Pass holder. What new benefit did uh, Icon announce would be available for the uh, next winter season? It would be the first run, first tracks program. So apparently they're going to operate the, uh, the lifts early, uh, some ski areas certainly do this for their season pass holders anyway, but uh, now this is going to be an icon benefit. Uh, it looks like 14 icon partner mountains are going to do this. Uh, of course, there's a nine-question <laughs> nine FAQ, so nothing can be simple. But hey, you know what? It's, uh, it's another uh, interesting, I guess, offering. So stay tuned. I guess the exact details are going to be announced closer to the start of the season. All right, number three, Indie Pass question. What three ski areas joined the Indie Pass for the 2022 winter season? That would be Powder Mountain in Utah. That would be Mount Ashland in Oregon and West Mountain in New York. Yes. Now the Indie Pass offers 66, well, it has 66 partner ski areas offering two days of skiing at each for $279. Mm, mm. Not bad. All right, number four, continuing the early theme of season passes, the lesser-known Freedom Pass added four ski areas to their season pass product. Who and what are they? That would be Cherry Peak, Utah, Eagle Point, Utah, Red River, New Mexico, and Snow Valley, California. Yes, I'm just as surprised as you are. <laughs> if you need a refresher on how the Freedom Pass works, so you have to have a season pass at one of their partner mountains. And once you have that season pass, you then get three free days with no blackout dates at each of the partner mountains. So 
certainly a great way to uh, you know have a home base, uh, season pass home base, and then uh, still be able to go out there and uh, and visit some other places. All right, now of course we mentioned all these other passes. We have to we have to loop in Vale Resorts, even though I actually don't have a question that I was going to ask about them. So this is a little commentary. Uh, if you uh, want to hear a little bit of updates on Epic Pass, uh, Vale Resorts, as you probably heard months ago, uh, offered a 20% across the board price cut for its Pass products, and not surprisingly, Pass sales rose significantly. That was certainly intended. <laughs> but through June 2nd, sales were up 50% in units sold and 33% in sales dollars compared to 2019. Uh, the last year for, you know, normal sales pre-pandemic. So, quote-unquote, sales were particularly strong in the Northeast, and that would suggest there's going to be a lot more friends to make uh, this upcoming winter season because, you know, there's not like a clear plan to manage capacity, at, at least at this point. So prepare to make some friends if you have an icon, uh, an epic pass. But I'm sure that's really can be said about most. <laughs> Most of these mega pass products. All right, number five, record-setting endurance event. Yes, 19-year-old Grace Staberg from Silver Throne, Colorado, broke the women's record for North America doing what at Copper Mountain, Colorado? She was skinning uphill. Yeah, she did it 21 times in one day. That's 56,000 feet of vertical climbing in 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, she started at uh, 9 a.m. on a Monday. And yeah, she's a ski mountaineering superstar, and apparently, she is. Um, yeah, she set the record. She actually beat her friend Boulder's Ree Kolb, who climbed fifty-five thousand feet in twenty-four hours. Uh, actually, a different mountain, but uh, this is all about vertical. Uh, at Buttermilk, I guess a few weeks earlier in March, uh, but uh, but. Grace, unfortunately, did not set the world record. She fell just short of the 57,890 feet climb by Italy's Martina Valmaseo in the Dolomites, uh, also in March. So how about that? I mean, that's just ridiculous. That's all I could say about that. But congratulations, Grace. It's an awesome honor to have until somebody you know beats it, just like the fastest known time thing we were talking about earlier. All right, let's head west for Altera's biggest capital project of the summer season. What is it and where is it? That would be the Squaw Alpine base-to-base -base gondola project. Yes, a new gondola will take skiers and riders between Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows bases in approximately 16 minutes. If you're driving, it's a seven-mile drive with plenty of backups to aggravate you throughout your ski vacation. Uh, yeah, it's uh, going to be, I guess, an eight-passenger gondola cabin with uh you know just incredible capacity you know to move skiers and riders between the two resorts i guess in total there will be six thousand acres of terrain for all levels of skiers with 360 degree views of that beautiful lake tahoe so yeah uh be on the lookout for that that's uh that's going to be transformational for sure number seven what colorado ski area reported the biggest snowfall this past season that would be winter park yes a crowd favorite on the March Madness episode. Yeah, Winter Park reported 164 days of skiing 
Uh, don't know if that was a record, but that's how many days they were open. And they, they saw collectively 369 uh, inches of snowfall. Yeah, making it the highest season total in Colorado. So congratulations, Winter Park. All right. Number eight, Fars Hill. A 200 vertical foot rope toe bump in a Vermont farmer's backyard is set to reopen next year. How long has it been closed for? If you said 55 years, you would be correct. Yeah, yeah, 55 years and they're reopening. New England Ski Industry News reported that the hill could open for this coming season with an antique T-bar recently yanked off the bunny slopes at Oak Mountain in New York. Yeah, so uh, that's pretty wild. There's, there's a really cool legacy article that's written uh, in, uh, from 1987 Vermont Life. talks about... Harold Farr, and uh, yeah, just having a 200-foot uh, bump for local kids to ski, uh, learn to ski after school. Didn't charge anybody, just collected donations and, and just sort of, uh, yeah, operated that way until 1966. It's pretty cool, and uh, wouldn't that just be great if a few more rope toes kind of came back and just sort of started sprinkled around their various, you know, states, regions, uh, you know. Why not, right? All right, number nine. What New Jersey ski area turned heads when announcing a herd of goats would join their landscaping team? That would be Mountain Creek. Yeah, New Jersey. The animals, 20 goats and sheep on loan from a local farm, have been stationed beneath the resort's mountain coaster to clear out a forest of weeds and undergrowth. Yeah, apparently the goats eat the invasive species down to their roots, forcing the plants to use all their energy to grow new Sprouts only to be eaten again and again, and they just get, you know, whacked, you know? They just get too tired to, to grow, and, uh, and that's how you're going to, you know, get, get around those invasive species. Yeah, so uh, I guess the, the ski area is so happy with the animals so far, they plan to double the herd soon. So, uh, you know, go goats. <laughs> that's also a local Hartford reference. All right, number 10, last one, Alpine X plans to build a new indoor snow sports resort in what East Coast state? That would be Virginia. Yeah, Lorton, Fairfax County, near Washington, D.C. Yeah, the resort called Fairfax Peak is the first of 20 such sites planned for North America. That's right, 20 such sites, indoor snow sports resorts planned for North America. Yeah, it's a 450,000-square-foot indoor facility with its longest slope at 1,700 feet. Yeah, and apparently it's going to be paired with an upscale hotel, you know, mountain coaster, zip lines, you know, multiple uh, F&B outlets, and a ton of amenities to get people to, uh, you know, use it all year round. But, yeah, Virginia will have uh, an indoor ski area. How about that? So I hope you enjoyed this uh, June edition of Ski News of the Week-ish. Yeah. Now we're going to play our second round game. You heard that right, folks. A second round trivia game. The original concept behind the podcast was to focus on a specific ski area. So in that spirit, and to satisfy my continued curiosity of the history of U.S. ski areas, this second round trivia game will feature a specific ski area, in this case, Powder Mountain, Utah. This information was compiled by Powder Mountain, Ski Utah, Indy Pass, and Forbes. Now, Powder Mountain, it is the Indy Pass headliner, at least from the recent editions, 
It's also a huge hidden gem in the northeast section of the ring of ski areas around Salt Lake City. Located in Eden, Utah, about 20 miles northeast of Ogden, Powder Mountain Resort had humble beginnings as the winter range for Frederick James Kobabe's sheep herd. Over a five-decade period, Fred accumulated additional land around Eden to circumvent a prohibition on grazing on designated national forest land. Old-timers say that the property was severely overgrazed by previous owners and the watershed was so poor that Wolf Creek dried up each fall. Fred's soil conservation practices greatly improved the vegetation and Powder Mountain is now known as one of the best watersheds in the Wasatch Mountains. In 1948, Fred's son Alvin bought the livestock company and its 8,000 acres. Sometime in the 1950s, while horseback riding with friends along Lightning Ridge, someone casually mentioned that the terrain would make a great ski resort. The idea rang true with now Dr. Alvin Kobabe, who traded a career in livestock, ranching, and construction, passed down from his father, for a medical license and practice at the ripe old age of 45. At the same time, he continued to amass adjacent property, adding to the thousands acquired from his father. When the resort opened in 1972, he owned 14,000 acres. Powder Mountain's first season was 1972. Only the sundown lift was open during the inaugural season. The area was lit for night skiing, a ski school was established and food was prepared on an outdoor barbecue. The main lodge, the sundown lodge, and the timberline lift were added to operations in the 1973 season. Dr. Alvin Kobabe at age 88 sold Powder Mountain Inc. in 2006 to Western American Holdings. He passed away in 2017 at the age of 99. The resort remained under the same management team led by his daughter, Aletta during the 26-20-2007 season. Since 2007, Powder Mountain has changed ownership three times. Purchased by the Summit Series co-founders and two venture capitalists in 2013, the now year-round resort offers a large mountain bike trail network in addition to enormous winter terrain with policies intended to preserve the Powder Mountain experience it has been known for. All right, that was a little bit about the ski area's history, and on to the trivia questions. We have five. Number one, what is Powder Mountain's so-called claim to fame? Number two, what notable policy did Powder Mountain implement for the 2021-2022 upcoming winter season? Number three, what is Powder Mountain's nickname? Number four, how did the Hidden Lake area, the area, lodge, and lift, get its name? Number five, what is unique about Highway 158, otherwise known as Powder Mountain Road? Okay, I'll give you a few seconds to think about those questions and potential answers. First up, what is Powder Mountain's so-called claim to fame? I'll accept two answers. The first is its size. The second, much more specifically, 8,464 acres. Yeah, it's the largest resort on the continent. 
those 8,464 total skiable acres edge out the previous mark held by Canada's Whistler Blackcomb by about 300 acres. Now, if you count only what they consider lift served, 7,900 acres, it is still the biggest in the United States, edging out nearby neighbor Park City by a few hundred. With an understated and mellow vibe, most non-locals have no idea they are enjoying one of the largest ski areas in North America. Number two, what notable policy did Powder Mount implement for the upcoming winter season? That would be caps on season pass and daily lift ticket sales. Actually, day season passes have already sold out. <laughs> However, night skiing season passes are still available, and they have also started a wait list for day season passes. By limiting season pass and daily ticket sales, Powder Mountain strives to achieve a skier density of no more than three acres per guest, and that's up from one acre per guest a few years ago, one of the lowest density ratings of any resort. Number three, what is Powder Mountain's nickname? <laughs> You know it, Pow Mau. Yeah, locals affectionately refer to the mountain as Pow Mau. It's fairly obvious why, hence the mountain's name, all those acres and lots of snow. And most skiers and riders can expect to find powder stashes all day long. In fact, long days after a storm has rolled through the sprawling resort. Number four, how did the Hidden Lake area get its name? Well, this is a little, this answer is a little uh, vague, but confusion is essentially <laughs> how, it, how it got its name. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Kobabe had a very thoughtful approach to setting out runs. He would actually spend countless hours watching skiers and riders use the mountain before cutting new runs. He climbed aboard a small Cessna plane to determine where his third lift should be installed. When he found himself back on solid ground, he couldn't locate the terrain that was pinpointed for the new lift. This is how Hidden Lake earned its name. The Hidden Lake lift was opened on New Year's Day 1975. It was the longest lift in Utah at the time, over a mile, measuring more than 6,000 feet. Number five, what is unique about Highway 158, otherwise known as Powder Mountain Road? Its steepness. Well, actually, there's two answers I'd accept. Its steepness is the first. The second is 14%. That's right. <laughs> it's one of the steepest roads in America. Its consistent grade of 14% means drivers should prepare for slick roads <laughs> and uh, come equipped with proper traction devices and tires. So there are your second round questions. But wait, there's more. Come on, it wouldn't be a Powderhounds podcast ski trivia game without a final Jeff Party question. Now, this one lacks creativity of past questions, but uh, does have a fun little, little piece. Uh, the question is, what does milk have to do with the powder country and Woody's World areas at the ski area? That's right. What does milk have to do with Powder Country and Woody's World. I'll give you a second to ponder and to contemplate the skim versions, the whole milk versions, perhaps organic, chocolate, maybe even almond. 
Yeah, so uh, the question, again, what does milk have to do with the Powder Country and Woody's World ski uh, areas at the ski area? That would be a shuttle bus. Yeah. Now, these two areas are ungroomed, inbounds, backcountry ski areas. It was started by the late Richard Wood, otherwise known as Woody, in the 80s with an old milk truck. Remember the day when you got milk by a truck? I don't either. But as the story goes, <laughs> skiers uh, would simply jump on the flatbed truck for a slow ride back up the mountain. That's how it all started. Now, the entire section, again, both Powder Country and Woody's World, is 1,200 acres, and that's like half the size of Snowbird. <laughs> And it dumps guests onto a road which cannot be missed thanks to gravity, where a revolving fleet of school buses pick, today pick up skiers and whisk them back to the base. But back when it started, yeah, a milk truck. An old milk truck was the transportation. But the best part about this area, again, inbounds, ungroomed backcountry experience, is that access is included in the price of your lift ticket or season pass. Now that will do it for today's trivia. I hope you enjoyed playing and learning a little bit more about Ski News of the Week-ish, as well as Powder Mountain in Utah. Look at the clock. It's 4 o'clock. Time to catch the last chair. Thank you for listening. Have a question, comment, or correction? Contact me on Twitter at PowderHoundSkis. You can also subscribe to the podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcast Manager, Verbal, Spotify, and Stitcher. Just type Powderhounds Podcast. Until next time, see you on the slopes, Powderhounds. Oh, and let's slip into some darkness with a little light.